All right. It's, it's a special treat this morning to look around and see the faces of some of the youth campers that I haven't seen for a year. They kind of, they, they come on Sunday to get ready to hit the buses on Monday. So it's, it's neat to see some of you. Uh, this is our, our final message on what ended up being a nine week series rather than a one year series on the major covenants. Uh, next week, Craig Nelson will be here. He was gracious to, uh, speak next week and that frees me up to focus on camp, uh, for this coming week. And the week after that, Lord willing, we will be starting our series on the book of Romans. Uh, I'm looking very much forward to that. Today our focus is on the sign that God appointed for the new covenant, the ceremony that we call the Lord's Supper, based on the name that Paul gave to it in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, this is where we're going to be going this morning. First, we're going to talk about the covenant signs in sort of a general way, and especially we're going to talk about the distinction in the signs between symbol and substance. And we'll see that that really uh, is, is important for us to understand. Then we're going to talk about the substance of the Lord's Supper, of the sign of the new covenant. What is it that we remember when we partake of the Lord's Supper every week? And there are three things in that category that I want us to look at that I believe are presented to us in the passages about the Lord's Supper in Scripture. First, who Jesus is. Second, his finished work. And by the way, that second point is the one where I think we do the best, typically, in our observance of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to spend a little less emphasis on that than you might think appropriate, but I'm going to do so in order to give more weight to the other two that we sometimes don't think as much about. The the third is Christ's future reward. Uh, and you'll see how that all plays out. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the sanctity of the Lord's Supper because in Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians 11, there's a very strong warning associated with this observance, uh, and we want to understand what that warning is about. For three of the four major covenants that we've examined in this series, God directly assigned a sign, a covenant sign, as a reminder of the covenant. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. Genesis 17, God laid out for Abraham the fact that, that, the, that circumcision would be the, the uh, physical, tangible reminder of this great covenant. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath, which God makes very clear in Exodus chapter 31. The Davidic covenant is the one great covenant that doesn't have a sign explicitly named in Scripture. But many consider the throne of David to be the sign of the Davidic covenant. The sign of the new covenant is explicitly presented, and it is the Lord's Supper. All four of the passages dealing with the Lord's Supper directly associate this observance, specifically the cup, with the new covenant as a physical reminder or sign. Now, before we, we go further and look at the sign itself, we need to talk some about signs in general in the Bible. What is a biblical sign or memorial? What does it mean when the Bible says that something is a sign of, of, uh, of something else? In short and very simply, it means that, the, that it is a symbol that points to a greater reality. There are many signs, many signs in the Old Testament, and they are all memorials, remembrances for us, and in some cases for God, about important places, people, events, or truths. When God calls us to remember something through a ceremony uh, or a memorial that he commands us to observe, What he's calling us to do is to set our minds on a specific event or a specific reality and to act in keeping with that reality, to organize our lives in keeping with something that he has made known to us, typically something about himself. Every memorial that God has given to his people is a symbol. It is not the reality in itself. And it's very important that we don't get this confused. 
Now, when you're on the highway and you see an exit sign, you know intuitively that the sign is not the same as the exit, right? The sign won't get you off the highway. It points you to the exit that will. Now, that seems silly to even point it out. But when it comes to biblical memorials or signs, we somehow get confused about this very simple distinction. The signs in the Bible, just like the signs on the highway, are symbols pointing to something that is substantial, and they are not the substance itself. Okay, Paul makes this point very directly in Romans chapter 2, when he says the following regarding circumcision in verses 28 and 29. He says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now this is not new. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says that the circumcision he's concerned with is the circumcision of the heart. And by the way, you may remember that in all our discussion of the Mosaic Covenant regarding the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, uh, we, we looked at really the same kind of an idea. This verse makes it clear that the spirit of the law is not that which is manifested outwardly and measured by men. It is that which is manifested inwardly and measured by God. In Colossians 2, verses 9 through 12, Paul applies this same distinction between symbol and substance to baptism as well as to circumcision. He says, In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him, you've been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. And then he says, in verse 11, And in Him, you were also circumcised with what? A circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision that comes from Christ having been buried with him, and then he immediately shifts to baptism. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul clearly says here that true circumcision and true baptism are the work of God, not the work of men. The circumcision that actually changes us is one made without human hands. Likewise, the baptism that actually unites us with Christ in the likeness of his death and resurrection is the one that comes not by the immersion of the flesh and water, but by faith in the working of God. The symbols are valuable, they are important, and they are commanded, but they are not the substance. We humans have a lot of trouble keeping this distinction between symbol and reality straight when it comes to religious symbols. But every time people treat God's appointed symbols or memorials as an end in themselves, theological and practical errors abound. Every time. Errors such as baptismal regeneration, which holds that the physical ceremony of baptism is required for salvation. Or transubstantiation. That's a big word that means when we take the real physical, that when we, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're taking the real physical body and blood of Jesus into ourselves every single time that we partake of that supper. See, that confuses the symbol with the substance. All such approaches take a God-appointed sign and mix it up with the reality to which it points. And there's, there have been all manner of, of struggles and errors in the Christian church in its history because of such a simple, a failure of such a simple distinction. Now please understand that this critical st- distinction between symbol and reality does not make the signs unimportant. God gave us memorials because he is mindful that we are but dust. 
He knows we need reminders. We need signs that draw our attention to the things that we must keep firmly in mind in order to truly know Him and walk with Him. If you think you don't need signs, try getting around the city of Dallas without any road signs. And if you want a great sample of that, try entering the north side of DFW Airport anytime soon. If I ever saw a situation that was in urgent need of a sign, that is it. By the way, one of the great benefits of physical memorials is that they are a powerful teaching aid in the instruction of our children. And God says it. He says this. Uh, Physical ceremonies that appeal to the senses tend to arouse the curiosity of children, especially when they're young. So they serve as great object lessons for explaining the things of the Lord to our kids. In Exodus chapter 12, God gave instruction to Israel about the annual observance of the Passover. And in verses 24 to 27, he says, You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children. And then in verse 26, he says, It will come about when your children say to you, What does this rite, this ceremony mean to you? Then you shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our sons. And it's a great story, right? They made two movies about it so far that I know of. It's a great story, and kids take an interest in it. In the next chapter, by the way, Exodus 13, God uses, he makes this same connection with two other important memorial observances, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Dedication of the Firstborn. And in both cases, he tells the Israelites to use these observances as opportunities with their children, regarding to, to instruct their children regarding his miraculous acts of deliverance on their behalf. The Old Testament is filled with memorials, vivid reminders of things that God wants his people to keep in mind in order to transform their thinking about him, about his character, his promises, his marvelous plan of redemption, and his amazing interventions in history to bring about that plan. Biblical memorials take the form of names, places, objects, Ceremonies. There are numerous tangible memorials that appeal to the senses and bring to mind events in which God acted to deliver or to judge. Like, for instance, in Joshua uh, chapter 4, Israel took 12 large stones out of the middle of the Jordan River while it was dried up and they stacked them up on the bank. And then they took 12 large stones from the bank and stacked them up in the middle of the river. And those, that, those two piles of stones reminded, reminded uh, many generations of Israelites after that that God stopped the flow of waters in the Jordan River and dried it up so that they could pass over to enter the promised land. It's tangible, it appeals to the senses, and it, it pictures something very powerful. There are wells and altars and mountains and tombs and names of people that all became memorials for God's people of his character and his work. The sacrifices are memorials, reminders of our sin and many other things. The priestly garments are memorials. The tabernacle itself is a memorial. All right, so why so many memorials in the Old Testament and so few in the New? The memorials in the Old Testament number in the thousands, most having been instituted directly by God. But in the New Testament, memorials are far, far fewer. Indeed, I believe there are only two formal memorial observances that Jesus commanded all of us to observe under the New Covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, there are certainly other symbols and and reminders in the New Testament, such as marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And there, there are quite a few others. But there are only two memorial observances that we are all commanded to observe together as children under the new covenant. Why is that? Why such a dramatic shift from old to new when it comes to the number of symbols? Now, some would say it's because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, so we don't need external reminders anymore. 
But if that were the case, we wouldn't need baptism or the Lord's Supper. I believe the answer is very, very simple. It's because Jesus is the substance of all of the Old Testament memorials that were instituted directly by God or by the patriarchs and prophets on God's behalf. Every reminder in the Old Testament about God's person and God's work finds its substance, its perfect, complete realization in Jesus Christ. The God who spoke in former days through the prophets in many portions and in many ways has now made himself known through his Son. The one who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And the two memorials appointed to us under the new covenant focus like a laser beam on one person, Jesus Christ. On who he is, what he has accomplished, and on our identification with him as the one in whom we have every good thing and every perfect gift. So in short, what else is there to remember? All right, to recap the main point thus far, the Lord's Supper is an important memorial. It's a vivid and powerful picture that we are commanded by God to observe regularly, but it is not the thing in itself. So what is the thing in itself? What is the substance of the Lord's Supper? Well, we've said that it's Christ, but let's go a little a little deeper. What is it that the Lord's Supper pictures? When we partake of the bread and the cup, what are we supposed to think about, meditate upon, keep in mind in order that we may have our hearts transformed in the way God intends? In the passages that talk about this great memorial, I see three facets to that which we are to remember in the Lord's Supper. First, who Jesus is, that he is our true food and our true life. Second, we remember his finished work. Christ poured out for us at the cross. And then finally, we remember his future reward the Feast of Fellowship to come. Let's talk about these three things in some detail. First, who Jesus is. The most direct statement that Jesus made regarding what we are to remember in the Lord's Supper is, do this in remembrance of me, of him. Luke 22, 19, 1 Corinthians 11, 24, and 25. This command is simple, and it is focused on a person on Jesus himself. But the command to remember Jesus could cover a whole lot of ground, right? We could talk from now on about all that the Bible teaches regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Because as our study of the covenants hopefully made clear, the entire Bible is about the person of Jesus Christ. But I believe that one year before Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, He gave his disciples some very directed food for thought, pun intended, about what he meant by this command to observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, metaphorically, that the bread is his body and the cup is his blood. This was not the first time Jesus had spoken in these terms. The passage in which Jesus has the most to say about taking his flesh and his blood into ourselves is John chapter 6. And it is one of the most surprising and powerful passages in all of the New Testament. I believe that an important part of our Lord's purpose in the rather astounding things that he says in John 6 during the Passover that occurred one year before his death was to prepare his disciples to understand the profound significance of the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted the night before his death a year later. John 6, open your Bibles to it because it's not all going to be up here. John 6 begins with the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. 
after that particular meal, the people who had gathered on the shore of the Sea of Galilee figured that if they made this guy king over them, who had just turned five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed a multitude, then they'd be able to eat this way all the time. They loved the idea of having a king who could provide so well for their physical needs. But Jesus had a a different kind of food in mind. Uh, So, and he also had a rather different path to kingship in mind than they did. So when they sought to take him by force to make him king, I'm not sure how they would pull that off, when they sought to do that, Jesus excused himself and crossed the Sea of Galilee over to Capernaum on foot. (laughs) After the multitudes had also crossed over to Capernaum on the other side of the sea by more conventional means, they questioned Jesus regarding when he had arrived at the other side, because as far as they could figure out, he hadn't had the benefit of a boat. But as was often the case, Jesus didn't answer their question. Instead, he cut to the chase by going directly to the sharp distinction between their priorities and his priorities. In John 6, verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, and that means pay attention, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. See, the multitudes wanted to make Jesus king, not because they had seen His miraculous signs and wanted to know Him and follow Him as God's promised Messiah. They wanted to make Him king so that they could eat well for the rest of their days. But Jesus told them they were after the wrong kind of food. He said the real food that he was offering to them is that which endures to eternal life. And for the next 42 verses, Jesus talked to them about true food and true drink. And what he said shook them up so badly that many, probably most of those who had been following him up to that point, abandoned him and walked away. And what messed with their minds so badly was that Jesus told them they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he made it a matter of life and death. In John 6 verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, again, pay close attention here. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now because... This multitude was mentally stuck in the realm of the physical. They took great offense at our Lord's words. The thought of consuming human flesh was as repugnant then as it is now. And the notion of consuming blood under any circumstances was explicitly forbidden in the law of Moses under pain of death. Verse 59 in John 6 tells us, that when Jesus was saying all these things, he was standing in the synagogue of Capernaum. So his audience consisted primarily of Jews. And the Jews knew that according to Leviticus 17 and various other passages in the law, they could not eat the flesh with its blood because the blood is the life and the life belongs to God. But now Jesus stood before them, saying that if they did not eat his flesh, which he called the only true food, and drink his blood, which he called the only true drink, that they would be dead. And these were stunning, worldview-changing words for this audience, and that included the twelve disciples. When some of those who had been following him grumbled to themselves about how offensive these things were to them, the next words that Jesus spoke should have cleared up 
their confusion between symbol and substance. In John 6, verses 60 to 63, Jesus said, and we'll start kind of in the middle of this, verse 61, he said, does this cause you to stumble? (laughs) What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? You think these words are a problem? Wait until you see me carried up into the heavens. And then he said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. My brother Steve Eichenbaum made that point this morning in the worship. That is the spiritual that matters. The whole point of all that Jesus had just told them was that the flesh profits nothing. Real life is spiritual life. Real food is spiritual food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus offered up his physical body and he poured out his physical blood in order to impart to us spiritual, eternal, real life. Jesus said, even the manna that God sent from heaven to miraculously provide for Israel in the wilderness for 40 years could not impart eternal life. But he said, the true bread and the true wine, which comes out of down out of heaven, the body and blood of Christ do just that. They impart eternal life. Now, one of the most mysterious and beautiful things about Jesus' words here is the connection between the physical and the spiritual in him alone. See, he didn't die metaphorically. He died physically. His blood was literally poured out and his body literally died. The physical event of his death accomplished a miraculous spiritual redemption by which we live indeed. The shedding of his blood was necessary to pay the eternal penalty that we could never pay. The death of his body by the pouring out of his life's blood imparts to us his life. To all who believe in him. His death is life to us. And by the way, the word life or live (laughs) occurs 18 times in this one chapter, more than in any other chapter of the Bible. As we saw last week in his high priestly prayer, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus declared what real life is. In John 17, 3, he said to the Father, This is eternal life that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. He doesn't merely give us life. He is life. The only real life that exists is that which consists of relationship and union with him. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. And the act of eating the bread and drinking the cup that represent his body and blood remind us that he is our life and there is no other. The second facet or aspect of that which we remember in the Lord's Supper is the one that we are generally most familiar with. And we've already talked about it some in the, in the context of the first point. And that is Christ poured out for us that which he accomplished at the cross. And it, it, again, it's inextricably tied to the first in Matthew twenty six twenty eight, Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The other synoptic gospels make similar statements. The pouring out of Jesus' blood at the cross was the perfect sacrifice once and for all of his life in our place. It's the very sacrifice that Isaiah spoke of in chapter 53, 52 and 53, 700 years before Christ, about the one who would bear our sins and our griefs upon himself and would grant us righteousness. The pouring out of the blood of Jesus Christ is that upon which all of the promises of the new covenant hinge. 
It is the single greatest event in history. And it is the event that Paul was talking about in his statement about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 when he said in verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink this this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To proclaim the Lord's death is to proclaim his atonement in our place, his payment of the eternal penalty for our sin. If you're here today and you think that it's up to you to be righteous enough to stand before God, God says that will never happen. There is only one basis upon which you can stand righteous in the presence of God, and that is the sacrifice that Jesus made in your place of himself. The third aspect of this great covenant sign is Christ's future reward, the feast of fellowship to come. This is the forward-looking aspect to the Lord's Supper. In Matthew twenty-six twenty-nine, Jesus said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. With those words, Jesus pointed the thoughts of his disciples forward. On the very night when he knew that he was about to be handed over to those who would put him to death, Jesus told his beloved disciples that he would not taste wine again until he drank it together with them in his Father's kingdom. One of the marvelous things that we remember every time we take the Lord's Supper is his purpose, his intention, his decree to bring us into eternal relationship and fellowship with himself and with his Father. As we saw early in this series on the covenants, the image of abundant wine is very strongly associated with the the ushering in of the kingdom of Messiah. We looked at several prophecies that pointed that direction. And it's a picture of blessed fellowship between God and his people. In Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, God speaks of the day when he will prepare a lavish banquet for his people. He said, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, the banquet of aged wine. And by the way, the all peoples is people from all nations being those whom he has chosen. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. In verse 8 he says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears from all faces. Sounds like Revelation uh, chapter 20. And he will remove the reproach of his people, 21, the remote, uh, reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we, he, we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9, speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. In verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is looking forward to the coming of that day. That day is the joy set before him for which he endured the cross despising the shame. The forward-looking aspect to the Lord's Supper is a reminder that for Jesus' own sake, His death purchased for us a place at that table. The table of everlasting fellowship between God and His people. Throughout Scripture, the connection between dining and close personal fellowship is very, very strong. We saw last week that the heart, the goal of all of God's covenant promises is what? It's relationship. Between him as our treasured inheritance and us whom he has called out to be his treasured inheritance. He sent his son to make us his own, 
to draw us into love and unity and fellowship, the same love and unity and fellowship that has existed from eternity past within the Godhead, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the culmination of his plan of redemption will be when we sit down with him in the presence of of his holiness, of him and his Son at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we dine with him in a fellowship that will last from then on and forever. All right. We've talked about the distinction between symbol and substance in the biblical signs, especially the covenant signs, including the Lord's Supper. We've talked about the substance of that which the Lord's Supper pictures. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives the church a very stern warning regarding the sanctity of the Lord's Supper and the attitude with which we must approach it. In that passage, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul restates Christ's words presenting the Lord's Supper. But those words are enclosed before and after by forceful words of rebuke. In verses 17 to 19, uh, Paul says, and it's before this, Paul says, uh, said that the Corinthians were uh, experiencing painful divisions within their church. And he rebuked them for the grievous selfishness that characterized their observance of the Lord's Supper. And in verses 20 to 22, he said, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not for the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. (laughs) What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? In short, the Corinthian believers were profaning the observance of the Lord's Supper. They were robbing it of its wonderful significance as God's appointed memorial of the new covenant, and they were treating it as a common meal. But it would have been bad enough if they were treating it as a common meal. They went beyond that. And they used it as an opportunity to create division within the body of Christ. They took the meal which pictures Christ's death to give us life. A life that consists in relationship with Him and with one another in Him. And they used it as an opportunity for self-indulgence and self-preference that created hostility between them rather than humbly showing preference to one another in honor. Some were being gluttons, jumping in first to get more of the food, and others were drinking so much of the wine that they became drunk. Immediately after these words of rebuke, Paul then reminded the Corinthian church of what Jesus had prescribed and spoken regarding the Lord's Supper. Then in verses 27 to 34... He resumed his rebuke. He said, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's a strong statement. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Now this is a powerful warning, but I believe this warning is one of the most misinterpreted passages in the New Testament. Here's where I have to get off the boat when it comes to how this passage is typically handled. I hear believers say all the time, that the exhortation in verse 28, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, means that we must not come to the Lord's table with unconfessed sin. So before we can partake of the Lord's Supper, we must get all of our known sin out on the table before God and confess it. If we don't, then we're setting ourselves up for the judgment spoken of here in verses 29 through 32. Now, I have two problems with that. First, 
I don't believe I've ever known a Christian who has confessed all of his or her sins even in a given day. Certainly not me. But more importantly, I do not believe that the warning in this passage is about confession of sin, unless it has to do with the sin of trivializing the Lord's Supper itself. Indeed, the focus, uh, the idea of focusing on ferreting out unconfessed sin in our lives turns our eyes away from Christ and onto ourselves. But the Lord's Supper is all about focusing our eyes on Jesus Himself who He is, what He has done, and what lays uh, lays before us because of what He has done. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David gave us a wonderful description of, of how we come to know the sin in our hearts. He said to God, Lord, You seek me and know my heart. You try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We do not discover and deal with the sin in our lives by introspecting. We keep our eyes on Christ, and that ensures that our hearts will be listening when His Spirit convicts. The warning here is very forceful. Indeed, the chastisement associated with this warning includes the possibility that God might take the life of the one who ignores the warning. And the essence of this warning is that we must not profane or treat as common the remembrance of our Lord's death. And the specific context of this warning is about treating this important observance as an opportunity for self-indulgence or self-preference. Now these days, guys, we pretty much structured out the possibility of any such excesses in our observance of the Lord's Supper simply because we have so minimized the physical elements themselves. It's kind of tough to be gluttonous with a minuscule piece of cracker. And it's super tough to get drunk on a thimbleful of grape juice. If you hear sarcasm in my voice, you've got me pegged. I believe we are so iconoclastic, so bent on getting rid of symbols that we've forgotten what it means to celebrate the gifts of God in a way that actually appeals to our senses. And by the way, I don't know who made the bread the last couple of weeks, but I loved it because I could finally taste it. (laughs) I don't want to get too hung up on the symbols. They're not that important because they are the symbol and not the substance. But however we choose to structure our observance of the Lord's Supper, the central point of Paul's warning is that we must never forget the transcendent power of that which it pictures. We must never treat the death of our Savior and the life, the eternal relationship with God which He gave to us through that death as if it is common because there is nothing less common than the death of our Savior. The problem, by the way, of God's people profaning His sacred memorials isn't new with the Lord's Supper. And neither are forceful warnings of judgment toward God's people when they treat his remembrances, his sacred remembrances as common. In that regard, there are some very significant similarities between the peace offerings under the Mosaic Covenant and the Lord's Supper under the New Covenant. Under the law of Moses, there was a very specific and consistent progression of the sacrifices. And if if you've never thought about this, I ask you to really focus with me for a minute on this because this is really powerful stuff to me. If you look at Leviticus 9, you see the actual order in which the offerings were to be presented. And there's several other passages that bear out that same order. The sin and guilt offerings came first because they pictured God's provision of an atoning sacrifice for sin. Of course, Christ is the perfect expression of that. The sin and guilt offerings were the first step in drawing near to the presence of God at the tabernacle and later at the temple. Then after the sin and guilt offerings came the whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering in which the entire animal was consumed on the, sac- on the altar pictured the dedication of the whole self to God in response to His provision of atonement pictured in the sin offering. 
after these sacrifices that pictured atonement for sin and dedication of self to God, then and only then came the peace offerings. The peace offering was the only category of sacrifice in which the offerer himself got to eat some of the animal that had been offered. It was, in effect, a sit-down dinner with God, a celebration of a condition of fellowship accomplished between God and his people. Accomplished because God made it possible through the provision of sin, of a sin and guilt offering that he provided. The peace offerings were, as such, the highest of all of the offerings because they pictured fellowship accomplished. They were the end of the path of access to God for his people. And thus, the penalty for treating the peace offerings as common or trivial was quite severe. According to Leviticus 7.18, if the offerer ate any of the meat of the peace offering after the second day, in other words, if he distanced the the eating of the meat too far from from the ceremony that kept his mind focused on the point, that would be an offensive thing, and the person who ate of it would bear his own iniquity. That's not, not a fun thought. By eating this sacrifice outside the parameters prescribed by God, the offerer would be treating this meal like any other meal. He would be negating its sacred importance as a reminder of God's provision and accomplishment of fellowship between the offerer and his God. A fellowship that that sinful offerer did not and would never deserve. In the next verses, Leviticus 7, 9 through 21 say that if an Israelite ate of the sacrifice of peace offerings in his uncleanness, let me take that off so we're not distracted by it. If he ate of the sacrifice of the peace offerings in his uncleanness, he would be cut off from his people. In other passages like Exodus 31 that presents the penalty for violating the Sabbath, we find out that the the phrase cut off from his people means dead, put to death. The Lord's Supper is more related to the peace offerings than to any of the other sacrifices under the Old Covenant because both are celebrations of fellowship provided and accomplished by God. Does that make sense? I think that's a powerful connection. The most severe penalty for trivializing the peace offerings was the death of the person who treated this memorial that which it pictured as trivial. And the most severe penalty for trivializing the Lord's Supper is also the death of the person observing the memorial. In 1 Corinthians 30, Paul says that because the Corinthian believers had been eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner by making it an occasion for selfishness and division, many among them were weak and sick and a number of them slept. Now, the word sleep in the New Testament in reference to Christians means that they died. But they didn't die permanently because they will be resurrected. That which is pictured in this great covenant And this great covenant sign is life to us. (laughs) Let us not trivialize it. Who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what lies ahead for us in him for all eternity is not something to be treated as common. Now, one final comment, and I want to thank Bob for nudging me not to miss this important point. Many Christians believe that observing the Lord's Supper every week is way too often. (laughs) They think that if you do any ceremony that frequently, it inherently becomes mindless repetition. But, beloved, I believe the real problem there is the personal motivation or appreciation of the observance, not the frequency. Jewish men, ever since Abraham have carried on their bodies the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision. It is an ever-present physical reminder on their bodies of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Under the Mosaic covenant, the Sabbath was observed every week as the covenant sign. 
We'd be hard-pressed to make the case that a once-per-week observance of the Lord's Supper as the sign of the greatest covenant in existence would be too often. And Think of it this way. Do you have a favorite kind of food that you could eat several times a week? I have a few. I could eat Tex-Mex every single day. In fact, I could eat cheese enchiladas and rice and black beans with a side of a pile of salsa and of chips and salsa. I could do that every single day. But since, yeah, every single day. But since I can't afford to do that, I eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch several times a week. Now that, that might sound to you like a serious compromise. But let me tell you about that sandwich. The peanut butter I eat is the real thing. It's not that, that candy corn syrup type stuff that, that you get uh, in, in most brands. And it absolutely has to be chunky. And for sweetening, one of those slices of bread has to be slathered with real fruit grape jelly. The bread has to be Mrs. Baird's buttered split-top wheat. I could eat that sandwich every day for the rest of my life, and I would savor it every single time. See, the problem that we have with observing the Lord's Supper isn't the frequency, it's the motivation. What means more to me, that glorious peanut butter sandwich (laughs) or the remembrance of my Savior that I celebrate with my eternal family once a week? The Savior whose death brought to all of us who believe true life and true food. The Savior who is preparing an eternal banquet for us in the presence of of our God. We should be delighted to observe this great covenant sign together with one another each time we gather. Loving Father, thank you for the signs that you give to us. Thank you for knowing the way we're wired because you wired us. (laughs) Lord, thank you for giving us things that appeal to our senses to stir us up and remind us of what's really important. Thank you, dear Father, for the remembrance that we celebrate together as joint heirs with Christ of you every week. And thank you, Lord, that the culmination, that that the substance of what we remember is Christ himself and all that he has done for us. Lord, we remember his death. We remember his blood poured out for us to give us life. We remember that he is our true food and that he is our one and only true life. And Lord, we remember when we take of this great symbol that the day is going to come when we will sit down with our Savior in the presence of our God and we will Dine in perfect fellowship with you, and that banquet will not end. Lord, we give the glory to our Son, uh, to our, our, our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. And before I stop, I need to also pray for the meal we're about to partake of together. Lord, thank you for um, this potluck dinner. Thank you for the times that you give us just to fellowship together and to enjoy one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that our our time this, uh, this afternoon would be pleasing in your sight. And we praise you for giving to us in abundance all that we will ever need in Christ. Amen.